0: section five of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter thirty two the sepoy part one on the twenty third of june eighteen fifty seven the hundredth anniversary of the battle of Plassey was celebrated in london one object of the celebration was to obtain the means of raising a monument to clive in his native county at such a meeting it was but natural that a good deal should be said about the existing condition of india and the prospects of that great empire which the genius and the daring of clive had gone so far to secure for the english crown it does not appear however as if any alarm was expressed with regard to the state of things in bengal or as if any of the noblemen and gentlemen present believed that at that very moment india was passing through a crisis more serious than clive himself had had to encounter indeed a month or so before a bombay journal had congratulated itself on the fact that india was quiet throughout yet at the hour when the plassey celebration was going on the great indian mutiny was already six weeks old and had already assumed full and distinctive proportions, was already known in India to be a convulsion destined to shake to its foundations the whole fabric of British rule in Hindustan. A few evenings after the celebration there was some cursory and casual discussion in Parliament about the doubtful news that had begun to arrive from India, but as yet no Englishman at home took serious thought of the matter the news came at last with a rush never in our time never probably at any time came such news upon england as the first full story of the outbreak in india it came with terrible not unnatural exaggeration england was horror-stricken by the stories of wholesale massacres of english women and children of the most abominable tortures the most degrading outrages inflicted upon english matrons and maidens the newspapers ran over with the most horrifying and the most circumstantial accounts of how english ladies of the highest refinement were dragged naked through the streets of delhi and were paraded in their nakedness before the eyes of the aged king of delhi in order that his hatred might be feasted with the sight of the shame and agony of the captives descriptions were given to which it is unnecessary to make any special allusions now of the vile mutilations and tortures inflicted on english women to glut the vengeance of the tyrant the pen of another procopius could alone have done full justice to the narratives which were poured in day after day upon the shuddering ears of englishmen until all thought even of the safety of the indian empire was swallowed up in a wild longing for revenge on the whole seed, breed, and race of the mutinous people who had tortured and outraged our countrywomen. It was not till the danger was all over and British arms had reconquered northern India that England learned the truth with regard to these alleged outrages and tortures. Let us dispose of this most painful part of the terrible story at the very beginning and once for all. During the Indian mutiny, the blood of innocent women and children was cruelly and lavishly spilt on one memorable occasion with a bloodthirstiness that might have belonged to the most savage times of medieval warfare. But there were no outrages in the common acceptation upon women. No English woman was stripped or dishonored or purposely mutilated. As to this fact, all historians of the mutiny are agreed but if the first stories of the outbreak that reached england dealt in exaggerations of this kind they do not seem to have exaggerated they do not seem to have even adequately appreciated the nature of the crisis with which england was suddenly called upon to deal the fact was that throughout the greater part of the north and north-west of the great indian peninsula There was a rebellion of the native races against english power it was not alone the sepoys who rose in revolt it was not by any means a merely military mutiny it was a combination whether the growth of deliberate design and long preparation or the sudden birth of chance and unexpected opportunity a combination of military grievance national hatred and religious fanaticism against the english occupiers of india the native princes and the native soldiers were in it the mohammedan and the hindu forgot their own religious antipathies to join against the christian hatred and panic were the stimulants of that great rebellious movement the quarrel about the greased cartridges was but the chance spark flung in among all the combustible material if that spark had not lighted it Some other would have done the work. In fact, there are thoughtful and well informed historians who believe that the incident of the greased cartridges was a fortunate one for our people, that coming as it did, it precipitated unexpectedly a great convulsion, which occurring later and as the result of more gradual operations might have been far more dangerous to the perpetuity of our rule. Let us first see what were the actual facts of the outbreak. When the improved Enfield rifle was introduced into the Indian army, the idea got abroad that the cartridges were made up in paper greased with a mixture of cow's fat and hog's lard. It appears that the paper was actually greased, but not with any such material as that which religious alarm suggested to the native troops. Now a mixture of cow's fat and hog's lard would have been, above all other things, unsuitable for use in cartridges to be distributed among our sepoys for the Hindu regards the cow with religious veneration and the mohammedan looks upon the hog with utter loathing in the mind of the former something sacred to him was profaned in that of the latter something unclean and abominable was forced upon his daily use it was in eighteen fifty six that the new rifles were sent out from england and the murmur against their use began at once various efforts were made to allay the panic among the native troops the use of the cartridges complained of was discontinued by orders issued in january eighteen fifty seven the governor-general sent out a proclamation in the following may assuring the army of bengal that the tales told to them of offence to their religion or injury to their caste being meditated by the government of india were all malicious inventions and falsehoods still the idea was strong among the troops that some design against their religion was meditated a mutinous spirit began to spread itself abroad in march some of the native regiments had to be disbanded in april some executions of sepoys took place for gross and open mutiny in the same month several of the bengal native cavalry and refused to use the cartridges served out to them although they had been authoritatively assured that the paper in which the cartridges were wrapped had never been touched by any offensive material on may ninth these men were sent to the jail they had been tried by court-martial and were sentenced eighty of them to imprisonment and hard labour for ten years the remaining five to a similar punishment for six years they had chains put on them in the presence of their comrades, who no doubt regarded them as martyrs to their religious faith, and they were thus publicly marched off to the common jail. The guard placed over the jail actually consisted of sepoys. The following day, Sunday, May 10th, was memorable. The native troops in Miruth broke into open mutiny. The Summa the ineluctabile tempus had come they fired upon their officers killed a colonel and others broke into the gaol released their comrades and massacred several of the european inhabitants the european troops rallied and drove them from their cantonments or barracks then came the momentous event the turning-point of the mutiny the act that marked out its character and made it what it afterwards became mirut is an important military station between the ganges and the jumna thirty-eight miles northeast of delhi in the vast palace of delhi almost a city in itself a reeking alsatia of lawless and privileged vice and crime lived the aged king of delhi as he was called the disestablished but not wholly disendowed sovereign the descendant of the great Timur, the last representative of the Grand Mogul. The mutineers fled along the road to Delhi, and some evil fate directed that they were not to be pursued or stopped on their way. Unchecked, unpursued, they burst into Delhi and swarmed into the precincts of the palace of the king. They claimed his protection. They insisted upon his accepting their cause in themselves. They proclaimed him emperor of india and planted the standard of rebellion against the english rule on the battlements of his palace they had found in one moment a leader a flag and a cause and the mutiny was transfigured into a revolutionary war the sepoy troops in the city and the cantonments on the delhi ridge two miles off and overlooking the city at once began to cast in their lot with the mutineers the poor old puppet whom they set up as their emperor was some eighty years old, a feeble creature, believed to have a mild taste for poetry and weak debauchery. He had long been merely a pensioner of the East India Company. During the early intrigues and struggles between the English and French in India, the company had taken the sovereigns of Delhi under their protection, nominally to save them from the aggressiveness of the rival power, and, as might be expected, The Delhi monarchs soon became mere pensionaries of the British authorities. It had even been determined that after the old king's death, a different arrangement should be made, that the title of king would not be allowed any longer, and that the privileges of the palace, the occupants of which were thus far allowed to be a law to themselves, should be restricted or abolished. A British commissioner directed affairs in the city, and British troops were quartered on the Delhi ridge outside still the king was living and was called a king he was the representative of the great dynasty whose name and effigies had been borne by all the coin of india until within some twenty years before he stood for legitimacy and divine right and he supplied all the various factions and sects of which the mutiny was composed or to be composed with a visible and acceptable head if the mutineers flying from Mirut had been promptly pursued and dispersed or captured before they reached delhi the tale we have to tell might have been much shorter and very different but when they reached unchecked the jumna glittering in the morning light when they swarmed across the bridge of boats that spanned it and when at length they clamoured under the windows of the palace that they had come to restore the rule of the delhi dynasty they had all unconsciously seized one of the great critical moments of history and converted a military mutiny into a national and religious war. This is the manner in which the Indian rebellion began and assumed its distinct character. But this dry statement of facts would go a very short way toward explaining how the mutiny of a few regiments came to assume the aspect of a rebellion. Mutinies were not novelties in India. There had been some very serious outbreaks before the time of the greased cartridges the European officers of the company had themselves mutinied in Bengal nearly a century before, and at that time the sepoys stood firm by the company whose salt they had eaten. There was a more general and serious mutiny at Velour, near Madras, in 1806, and the sons of the famous Tipu Sahib took part with it, and endeavoured to make it the means of regaining the forfeited power of their house. It had to be dealt with as if it were a war, and the lore had to be recaptured in eighteen forty nine a bengal regiment seized a fortress near lahore sir charles napier the conqueror of Sindhi, once protested that thirty regiments of the bengal army were ripe for revolt napier however seems to have thought only of military mutiny and not of religious and political rebellion at Murud itself the very cradle of the outbreak A pamphlet was published in 1851 by Colonel Hodgson to argue that the admission of the priestly caste too freely into the Bengal army would be the means of fomenting sedition among the native troops. But there was a combination of circumstances at work to bring about such a revolt as Napier never dreamed of, a revolt as different from the outbreak he contemplated as the French Revolution differed from the mutiny of the Nore these causes affected variously but at once the army the princes and the populations of india the causes and motives for sedition says bacon and the words have been cited with much appropriateness and effect by sir j w k in his history of the sepoy war are innovations in religion taxes alteration of laws and customs breaking of privileges general oppression advancement of unworthy persons, strangers, deaths, disbanded soldiers, factions grown desperate, and whatsoever in offending people joineth and knitteth them in a common cause. Not all these various impulses to rebellion were stirring perhaps in India, but assuredly many, possibly the majority of them, were at work. As is usual in such cases too, it happened that many changes made, nay, Many privileges disinterestedly conferred by the ruling power in India for the benefit and pleasure of the native levies turned into other causes and stimulants of sedition and rebellion. Let us speak first of the army. The Bengal army was very different in its constitution and condition from that of Bombay or Madras, the other great divisions of Indian government at that time. In the Bengal army, the hindu sepoys were far more numerous than the mohammedans and were chiefly Brahmins of high caste while in madras and bombay the army was made up as the bengal regiments are now of men of all sects and races without discrimination until the very year before the mutiny the bengal soldier was only enlisted for service in india and was exempted from any liability to be sent across the seas Across the black water, which the sepoy dreaded and hated to have to cross. No such exemption was allowed to the soldiers of Bombay or Madras, and in July 1856, an order was issued by the military authorities to the effect that future enlistments in Bengal should be for service anywhere without limitation. Thus, the Bengal sepoy had not only been put in the position of a privileged and pampered favourite but he had been subjected to the indignity and disappointment of seeing his privileges taken away from him he was indeed an excellent soldier and was naturally made a favourite by many of his commanders but he was very proud and was rigidly tenacious of what he considered his rights he lived apart with his numerous and almost limitless family representing all grades of relationship he cooked his food apart and ate it apart he acknowledged one set of governing principles while he was on parade and had a totally different code of customs and laws and morals to regulate his private life the tide of blood relationship was very strong with the sepoy the elder sepoy always took good care to keep his regiment well supplied with recruits from among his own family as the Highland sergeant in the british army endeavours to have as many as possible of his kith and clan in the regiment with himself. As the Irishman in the New York police force is anxious to get as many of his friends and fellow-countrymen as may be into the same ranks, so the sepoy did his best to surround himself with men of his blood and of his ways. There was therefore the spirit of a clan and of a sect pervading the sepoy regiments. A strong current, flowing beneath the stream of superficial military discipline and esprit de corps the sepoy had many privileges denied to his fellow religionists who were not in the military ranks let it be added that he was very often deeply in debt that his pay was frequently mortgaged to usurers who hung on him as the crimps do upon a sailor in one of our seaport towns and that therefore he had something of catiline's reason for desiring a general upset and a clearing off of old responsibilities but we must above all other things take into account when considering the position of the hindu sepoy the influence of the tremendous institution of caste an englishman or european of any country will have to call his imaginative faculties somewhat vigorously to his aid in order to get even an idea of the power of this monstrous superstition. The man who by the merest accident, by the slightest contact with anything that defiled, had lost caste, was excommunicated from among the living, and was held to be forevermore accursed of God. His dearest friend, his nearest relation, shrank back from him in alarm and abhorrence, when helen macgregor in scott's romance would express her sense of the degradation that had been put upon her she declares that her mother's bones would shrink away from her in the grave if her corpse were to be laid beside them the sepoy fully believed that his mother's bones ought to shrink away from contact with the polluted body of the son who had lost caste now it had become from various causes a strong suspicion in the mind of the sepoy that there was a deliberate purpose in the minds of the English rulers of the country to defile the Hindus and to bring them all to the dead level of one caste or no caste. The suspicion in part arose out of the fact that this institution of caste, penetrating as it did so subtly and so universally into all the business of life, could not but come into frequent collision with any system of European military and civil discipline however carefully and considerately managed. No doubt there was in many instances a lack of consideration shown for the Hindu's peculiar and very perplexing tenets. The Englishman is not usually a very imaginative personage, nor is he rich in those sympathetic instincts which might enable a ruler to enter into and make allowance for the influence of sentiments and usages widely different from his own. To many a man fresh from the ways of england the hindu doctrines and practices appeared so ineffably absurd that he could not believe any human beings were serious in their devotion to them and he took no pains to conceal his opinion as to the absurdity of the creed and the hypocrisy of those who professed it some of the elder officers and civilians were imbued very strongly with the conviction that the work of open and what we may call aggressive proselytism was part of the duty of a christian and in the best faith and with the purest intentions they thus strengthened the growing suspicion that the mind of the authorities was set on the defilement of the hindus nor was it among the hindus alone that the alarm began to spread abroad it was the conviction of the mohammedans that their faith and their rights were to be tampered with as well it was whispered among them everywhere that the peculiar baptismal custom of the mohammedans was to be suppressed by law and that mohammedan women were to be compelled to go unveiled in public the slightest alterations in any system gave fresh confirmation to the suspicions that were afloat among the hindus and musalmans when a change was made in the arrangements of the prisons and the native prisoners were no longer allowed to cook for themselves a murmur went abroad that this was the first overt act in the conspiracy to destroy the caste and with it the bodies and souls of the hindus another change must be noticed too at one time it was intended that the native troops should be commanded for the most part by native officers the men would therefore have had something like sufficient security that their religious scruples were regarded and respected but by degrees the clever pushing and capable britain began to monopolize the officers posts everywhere the natives were shouldered out of the high positions until at length it became practically an army of native rank and file commanded by englishmen if we remember that a hindu sergeant of lower caste would when off parade often abase himself with his forehead to the dust before a sepoy private who belonged to the Brahmin order we shall have some idea of the perpetual collision between military discipline and religious principle which affected the hindu members of an army almost exclusively commanded by europeans and christians End of section five.